At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This year, build your credit history with the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. No credit checks to apply. Get started at chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Chime checking account and 200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply. I faced Kerry Wood in high school, and he, and he was a freshman when I was a sophomore. It was the first time I faced him, and he was the first time I ever saw a guy. I'm like, oh, this guy's got to be throwing hard. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today we're talking to Ben Grieve, the 1998 AL Rookie of the Year and part of the small fraternity of players that have earned the distinction of being BA's number one overall prospect. We talk about Ben's upbringing. If you grew up in a place like me that got Fox Sports Southwest, you heard Ben's dad, Tom, call Rangers games. Tom, like Ben, was a first-round pick, uh, and when Ben was growing up in the Arlington area, Tom was the GM of the Rangers, which naturally allowed Ben to have some pretty cool experiences as a kid and some perks as he became a top high school prospect. He talks about the noise of being a first-rounder, what it's like in 1994 versus what it's like now, and his time in the minors and the pressure of being a top prospect. We also discuss being one of the few people named in Jose Canseco's book, but not for a bad reason. Uh, I had a great time talking to Ben, great dive into baseball in the 90s, uh, and, and kind of that early prospect era right before social media, right before really the internet started putting all that hype on prospects and and how Ben kind of dealt with that as he came up the minors and made his way to Oakland. Uh, episodes from Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. They're all pretty evergreen. If you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We've got a new Baseball America podcast, the 90th percentile with Jeff Ponce. He's talking player development. Had an awesome first episode with Tom House. College season's almost here. Got Teddy Cahill, Joe Healy on that one. It is always a good time to subscribe to Baseball America. And with that, let's talk to Ben Grieve. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he's a first-round pick of the A's in the 1994 draft, former big league outfielder Ben Grieve. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time. 
My pleasure. Glad to be here. I'm I'm glad to have you. I'm specifically excited about this. I I was going through my baseball card collection the other day. I actually, still have still have your rookie card. So that oh, was wow. it, it's still in still in plastic. Uh, but um, yeah. So I, I've been looking forward to this. Um, Want to dive right in? Uh, you're you know guy from the from the Texas high school ranks. When did you realize you had a future at the next level? Whether that be at the Division One college level or in the pro ranks? Um, probably I would say. Uh... You know, I was, I got pretty good, you know, obviously when I was growing up, I was always on all-star teams and stuff, but I think after my uh, sophomore season in high school, I had a really good summer. And uh, I think at that, probably at that time, I realized I could probably play in college. And then after my junior year, I, I'm like, oh man, maybe, maybe I can skip college. And then uh, as it got closer to my senior year, um, but each level of high school, I, I kept improving and had a more uh, lofty goals after each level. So what were those, those summers in high school like? Because I know now, you know, you're the, you're the parent of a high school baseball player. I'm sure travel ball has changed a little bit than, uh, than from the nineties. So how much baseball were you playing, you know, year to year? Um, you're exactly right about that. There's way more. Um, and not just cause I'm in San Diego and you can play year round here. I think every year, everywhere they're playing almost year round, if the weather allows it. But when I was growing up, I didn't play. I played little league, which is what we had in Arlington. And I would play my little league season. And then I would be done with baseball until the next little league season. Uh, I never played on a travel team um, until I got to high school, you play the high school season. And then you play in the summer. Um, and the, the leagues were different back then too. I, I know in our high school, I played in a Dallas based summer league for a team called the Dallas Mustangs. And we had an actual league of like eight or 10 teams and we would play those eight or 10 teams. And, um, you know, there'd be a championship and um, the winners would advance further and further and end up in Farmington, New Mexico. But now it's just these satellite tournaments every weekend. Uh, if you want to play every weekend, you can, and you go play in these tournaments. Uh, my youngest son uh, is 11. And they could have a tournament every weekend if they want. They go and they play. And if you win, you get a ring and that's it. And whoever wants to can enter it. Um, you know, it's fun for them. But I, I liked the idea of have, having a league that you were in uh, and trying to trying to compete and win a championship in a league rather than just playing these random tournaments every weekend. You also, you grew up in baseball in the sense that you had, you had someone in the house who probably had a good idea of, of your kind of talent level. Um, you're, you know, your dad, you're obviously son of, son of a big leaguer, son of a first round pick, color commentator. Um, you know, if yeah. you, I had Fox Sports Southwest for years, so I've heard a lot of, heard a lot of your yeah. dad. Uh, GM wore a lot of hats. How early did you realize that like other kids' dads don't have, don't have this kind of job? Because he was basically done playing by the time, you know, you were in grade school, but he was always around baseball. Yeah, I uh, I probably took it took it for granted um, until friends would just tell me how cool it was that I got to shag fly balls during batting practice. Um, but you're right, he was in baseball my whole life as a player when I was really young, and then a farm director. So um, you know, we'd go down to a ball games and stuff when I was young, and then uh, GM was really cool because I got to be a bat boy. I was old enough to be a bat boy with my brother. And so that was the, the uh, era when the Rangers had all these players, they were making trades. They had Rafael Palmero, Ruben Sierra, Julio Franco, um, 
and others and they and nolan was probably the biggest one so uh, i got to see some no hitters up close i got to see nolan's 5,000 strikeout from in the dugout um and to answer your question i probably years later probably realized how how cool it was and how special that was to be able to do all that when you're a kid or at least like an early teenager and you're seeing you see big league pitching from the dugout and like, you, you know, you play your games, you're a hitter or whatever. Does any part of you think like, Oh, you know what? I, I can hit that or I'm going to be able to hit that. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, and it's interesting because I went to a spring training game with my son. Um, uh, I guess it was a couple years ago and I forget the pitcher. Um, he's actually a closer for the Rangers for a while. He's bounced around a lot. Um, but anyways, he was warming up in the bullpen and we were standing above watching this guy throw and I'm watching him throw. And I was in disbelief that I could actually hit a ball that was being thrown. <laughs> <throwing> <laughs> that hard. I was like, oh, that's uh, I just forgot how hard they actually threw. Um, but yeah, watching it up close from the side, you, you, you kind of realize how hard it's coming in. Um, and then, you know, it's a gradual process in high school. I remember I faced Kerry Wood in high school. And oh, we, wow. And he was a freshman when I was a sophomore. It was the first time I faced him. And he was the first time I ever saw a guy. I'm like, oh, this guy's got to be throwing hard. Like, we didn't have radar guns out back then. But he was probably throwing close to 90. And he was the first one where I thought, this guy is really throwing it hard. And, you know, I, I he probably struck me out. But I, I, I was able to hit him. So I, I kind of realized, like, okay, if I can hit, if I can hit that speed and then uh, learn how to hit the off-speed pitches, I, I should be okay. And he was like 14, 15, like he was a freshman just throwing 90. He was a freshman and he had to be thrown close to 90, maybe upper 80s. And he was probably 15, if I had to guess. That uh, that 20 strikeout game makes the rounds on Twitter every so yeah. often. It's just he like, wasn't it's throwing just... that slider at the time. <laughs> he looked like a wiffle ball going up there. Um, with your dad, like not only being a guy who played, but then a guy whose job was, was talent evaluation and continually being involved in the game, how... How hands-on was he when it came to your own game? And then how receptive are you? Because I I know, I'm sure you know now, especially like parenting, listening to your dad is different than like listening to a coach. Yeah, I was always uh, receptive to any advice he had. And it was always good advice. Um, kind of just got to uh, know when the right time to give it is. It's not always right after a game. Um, I've come to learn that with my own kids. Um and he obviously had some knowledge, but the other thing going back to what we just talked about is I remember one time I was in a slump in high school and he took me out to the Rangers field and the Rangers cages. And I had a hitting lesson with the Rangers hitting coach at the time, Tom Robson. And so, you know, just being able to do stuff like that, you know, I pitched back then and the, the Rangers pitching coach was Tom house. Who's still working with pitchers and well-known and actually works with quarterbacks now too, I think. So being able to do stuff like that is just, it's unique and, uh, and special. Yeah. What, what did a slump look like for you in high school? I, I always kind of wonder that. Cause like you're facing a bunch of future accountants who throw 75 and you ended up yeah. being the second overall pick. <laughs> like what is, what is a slump? And like, what does a typical at bat look like for you? Especially when it becomes common knowledge that you're this guy who's going to be a first round pick. Like, did you see anything? Um, yeah, I played basketball too. So every year I would be a little bit uh, rusty after basketball season because um, it, it cut into baseball season. So a slump was probably the first three or four games of the year, maybe going like, I don't know, 
three for 12 or something like that. Um, so it's just more of like how I would feel. I shouldn't say a slump because you, you probably are still getting hits, but just don't feel great or feel, uh, feel like you want to. And so I guess that's more of a way to put it rather than just a slump. But now my son's, uh, when I go watch his, his games, especially his travel ball team, there are way more pitchers that are throwing hard these days. And I don't know if it's just a fact that more people are playing or more people are getting these lessons and learning um, how to do it. But uh, if I was in high school and a guy was throwing in the eighties, we thought that was, he was throwing hard and every team had one or two. Um, now when I go watch high school games, and especially the travel ball games, there's multiple kids throwing close to 90 and above 90 in some of the big tournaments. Um, so it just seems like there's more, more talent these days. Yeah. I mean like the onset of just a velocity training has just been incredible. Yeah. I mean, you see it all the way up to the big leagues, like ev just everyone, everyone throws gas yeah. now. Yeah. And it's, it's fine line cause it's become so much of a focus that that's what every kid is the goal is, is to hit a certain velocity as a pitcher, obviously, you know, 90s, the magic number in high school. And then when you get to college and you want to keep playing after that, it's 95, you know, the people have kind of forgotten the art of the Greg Maddox style pitcher with movement and location. Um, it hasn't become, it's all spin rate and throwing high strikes because of the ball spins more. It's just completely different. It is. It is. Um, so you, you ended up, you didn't go to college. You obviously bypassed college, but I was interested. You're, you're a TCU commit that if, if someone said now, you know, a first round pick was committed to TCU, that's, you know, that makes sense. They went to, you know, they've gone to Omaha four or five times in the last 10 years, kind of looking mm -hmm. at what that program was at the time. They, they won, uh, a conference title in 94, but though trips to Omaha, kind of not a, not a powerhouse. What, what drew you to picking TCU? I'd imagine you had quite a selection. I did. Uh, and my wife can't believe when I t tell her that I could have gone to Stanford on a full ride. She thinks I'm completely stupid for <laughs> not taking that. Um, You'd have that fancy piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. So TCU's coach at the time was Lance Brown, and he was a batting practice pitcher for the Rangers. So I'd see Lance every day at the ballpark at all the home games. So I knew Lance and uh, that 94 team that won the Southwest conference, my older brother, Tim was a, a pitcher on that team and did really well for him, for them. And so I had that connection with a brother that went there knowing the coach uh, Nolan's older son, Reed Ryan uh, was also a pitcher there. And I knew him from being at the ballpark. So it's just more of a, a connection I had. And also the fact that it was uh, close to home. Did it seem very backup plan-ish? Like when you committed, was it like a big maybe even at that time? Yeah, I remember thinking to myself, because that's back then you commit your senior year. Now people are committing as freshmen and juniors and sophomores. So back then, at the time I committed, I kind of had an idea that I might be a high pick. And so it was more of a certain thing. Um, so yeah, I remember telling Lance that I was going to, choose TCU and we were both happy and excited and didn't really talk much about the draft. I'm sure he, he probably knew in the back of his mind uh, that I might not be going there. What was the, the noise like at the time? There's no social media or anything, but just with attention around you, especially I'm sure the, you know, scouts coming to games during your senior year, what was, what was dealing with 
whatever the whatever the noise level I guess got to at, at that time, even without you know people tweeting about you or yeah. YouTube or anything like that. I, I seeing how it is now, I, I would pre- definitely prefer it the way it was when I was in high school. Uh, just a lot less stressful. Um, not worried about getting likes on your videos and, and posting because I was never a self-promoting type guy. Nowadays, if you want to get seen, you gotta you gotta put your swing and everything on social media so people can see it. Um, so at the time, it was more uh, just professional scouts. They you know come to our practices, maybe bring wooden bats, wanting to see me hit with a wooden bat. Um, and at our at our games, I didn't always know who was who, but I know, I knew that there was multitude of scouts at all of our high school games when I was a senior, not as much when I was a junior. Um, but as a kid, I, now I, I think about it and I'm like, no, oh, that must be nervous. Like if there's a scout at my son's game trying to impress him. But back then I, I think teenage kids are, their brains are able to kind of just forget about it and, and not, not think about it too much. I don't remember worrying about impressing scouts ever. So in that draft, the 94 uh, draft, Paul Wilson was kind of the the number one guy pitching at Florida state. It was, mm-hmm. it was, um, it was almost like a given that he was going one, one, or at least strong thing. We actually earlier on the show, I didn't realize until uh, I, I was doing my prep, we had Josh booty on an episode way early in the show's run. So another, another oh, really? prep from, yeah. that, from that draft, when, when things were, were kind of getting, kind of getting down to, you know, couple weeks out you're figuring out your number you're trying to figure out where you're going to wind up rangers coincidentally do not have a first round pick in that year's draft right uh, surrendered for for signing will clark how did how did that like how did that process play out like when did you when did you know you were going second uh, i i knew i would be going in the top five i think um i think the padres were picking third and i remember they were at a lot of my games um and I know I had one really good game when one of their higher up scouts was there. So I, I thought maybe I might go to the Padres. Um, but I, I didn't know for sure until I got picked. Um, and I, I was actually, for the draft, I was in the Rangers, uh, whatever you call it, their draft their draft room. So I, I got to hear the, uh, the conference call of the actual draft and hear my name picked um live in their in their little conference room so that was pretty cool but i didn't know i was going to be picked until i was picked did as far you ended up signing for 1.2 was that your number you knew they'd hit it when when they picked you or was there did you have the the negotiate the back and forth negotiation process i wasn't i i wasn't worried at all about not getting enough money or getting what i wanted um my dad negotiated the contract for me and he called Sandy Alderson or Sandy called him and they said, here, we'll give you this. My dad said, I'll take this. They said, we'll give you this. And that was done. And it took five seconds. Um, so I, I just got what was fair. They gave me what was fair. And I, I went to reported the uh, Phoenix, Arizona and went to Medford from there. With that, uh, that quick sign, just getting that done, especially even in those, you know, in those times, a lot of holdouts, a lot of whatever you get, how much of an impact in getting those 72 games and not just like in the complex, like in short season, um, what, where did you see the benefit in, in that versus if you had, you know, held out until August, gotten, gone to instructs and then had your first full full season in 19. I knew I was going to sign. Um, 
and so I just figured if I'm going to, if I'm going to do it, why, why prolong it? Why not just go meet all my teammates, um, go play in the short season. I didn't really know where they were going to send me, but um, I'm glad I did it the way I did. Cause I got to go to Phoenix for five days before short season and uh, meet all the college guys um, that I was going to be playing with and get to know them a little bit. So from there we go to Medford and I just got to do it from the beginning rather than uh, and the other thing I, I thought was, okay, if I hold out for a couple, two or three months and show up with all these guys that signed and got the fraction of what I got, what are they going to, what are they going to think of me? Like, Oh, this guy's holding out for 200,000 extra dollars and they gave us $8,000 to sign. So I, I had that in the back of my mind too. So I, I wanted to just get there and, and get it started. Well, speaking of all that money you signed for, did you, did you get to treat yourself to anything? I was so dumb back then. I thought, I remember saying uh, in an interview that I was so happy because now I'm set for life. <laughs> 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 no idea that uh, I was going to have to pay taxes on it, how much anything costs. Um, so I bought a grand Cherokee. I remember a gold grand Cherokee and, uh, I think that was it. I tried to save all the rest. Yeah. That's as, as far as, as far as like big spending goes, that's, that's pretty good. That's not bad. We've, yeah, we've had worse on this show. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, yeah. I've heard, uh, I've heard extended spring and in, in just in the complex in Arizona, that's where money goes to die. Cause you gotta yeah. find something to, to, to yeah. do. <laughs> that's funny. So with, I mean, with your background, dad, who probably could have, you know, you said you went to a ball games as a kid. You it, did life in minor league baseball come as a surprise at all. Bus rides, conditions. was anything like that. Were, were you as ready as you could have been? Um, yeah, I think so. I think I, I kind of knew what to expect. Um, you know, even if you do know what to expect, you know, eight, nine hour bus rides. I mean, those are no fun, but, uh, everyone asks like, Oh, was it, was it so hard to play in the minor leagues? It's not hard at all. You're with, uh, 20 other guys. It's basically like a fraternity. You're playing cards and hanging out and going to the ballpark every day. Um, the hotels aren't, aren't that great, obviously. Um, but you know, you got a, a roommate there with you, you're hanging out, eating crappy food. It, it, when you're that young, you don't really think about stuff like that. I love, I love, I loved every second of it. I was going to ask, what's the go-to bus entertainment before smartphones? We had uh, TVs on all the buses with DVDs. And so um, I know, I don't remember who was in charge of bringing the DVDs, but there'd be a movie on basically, uh, no phones. Um, and so you're forced to find entertainment. So you'd set up little coolers in the middle of the aisle and, and play four man card games, um, you know, sleep a lot. Hopefully no one's playing loud music. Um, sometimes that gets annoying. But. Yeah, it's it's way different in the era of of phones. Everyone, including myself, is has their face buried in their phone a lot of the time because um, it's just that you get into that habit. But back then, you you had to find other stuff to do. With the no phones, no social media, it meant, I guess, like especially while you're you're playing pro those first early years when the rest of your friends kind of go to college, live that life, get to do all that stuff. You really, you know, you're not having, I guess the FOMO, like, you know, you see on Instagram or whatever, like your friends are at some football game, your friends are at a party, your friends are doing whatever. Right. When you, 
is is there any of that like did you enjoy the did you enjoy it when you know i guess christmas break rolls around probably the few time you're home your friends are home that you're the professional they're out living college like were you at peace with that or was there was there any fomo um definitely was i i remember it, towards the end of each season really being excited to like get back home especially when you just get done with high school because you're still connected with all your high school uh friends and stuff and they're still coming back for the holidays so i remember really wanting to get back home and, and hang out with the the gang um i remember i went to the arizona fall league one year and i remember thinking like oh hopefully it doesn't cut into thanksgiving you know because that's when i'm going to see all my friends um and then as you get further and further away from high school uh it becomes less and less. But I remember at first I was really excited to get back home in the off season. Yeah. Like I felt like I was kind of missing out on hanging out with the guys. Yeah. Your first full season, you, they send you to, to West Michigan. Had you played cold weather base? I know DFW can get cold. Like it has its moments, but had you played, had you had an April, like what I'm sure April in West Michigan was like before? No, definitely not. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't do that well there. Um, some of it had to do with the cold. Some of, some of it was more that I just wasn't hitting well. Um, but never, I, I remember the, the heaters in the dugout. Um, yeah, it was, I, I mean, the tigers do it every year. The twins are doing it now. So, um, it's just something you got to deal with is the cold. It's, it's not a cold weather sport, especially I mean, it favors the pitchers. Um, you know, the ball doesn't sting your hands when you throw a ball, but if you hit the ball and get jammed or hit it off the end in cold weather, it, it hurts. Oh yeah. 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 There's, there's nothing where you get beaned in the cold. Oof. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that year in Modesto 96 and high a, you, you really, you tear the cover off the ball first half of the year. Um, you know, every, everything is great. They kick you up to the, to double a kind of a mid season promotion, you end up splitting your year there. You don't rake solid numbers for a guy who's 19, 20 years old, but it's not, not what you're doing in high. They say that the, the high to double a jump is the biggest jump besides the jump to the big leagues. What, um, you know, is it, is it more difficult to jump up in the, in the middle of a season, as opposed to if you had just gone out there and, you know, in April? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely hard each time you jump up. Cause, um, you're playing a lot of the same teams, um, from the beginning of the year. So if you're there and you start seeing these pitchers more and more, it's an advantage for, for the hitter. Um, cause you know, there's no scouting reports. So we don't, I never, never knew what a pitcher had till I got in the on deck circle and watched him, watched him throw. So, um, going up to double a, you know, I guess you just got to ask your teammates, Hey, what's, what's this guy got? But the age difference, I think from a ball to double a, I think double a and triple a, just I don't know how it is nowadays, but I remember back then. You know, there, there was some, there was men in Double A AA and Triple A. They weren't men in A ball. They were still kids down there, um, and so I think they just were more advanced uh, mentally um, as pitchers, knowing how to get people out. Um, not necessarily more talent or velocity, but just better all around ball players in, in Double A and Triple A. When it's that first few weeks, you're like when you're seeing guys for the first few times, you don't really have a scouting report. You're just like getting what they get from the guy who's who's walking back in or from the on deck circle. What what's the plan when you go out there? Are you just are you kind of trying to do the same thing every time? Just like look for a pitch that you don't really have an idea of what the sequence might be. Like how how do you how do you game plan for a guy who might be different than the guy you faced the night before? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I uh, I always wanted to hit a fastball, and so my approach never really changed. Um, you want to know like what type of fastball he has, so you'd always say, "Hey, is it straight?" Um, and if it's straight, that's good. Um, but if a guy's throwing a cutter or a, or a two seamer, and you don't know that going up there, you're probably going to hit it off the end of the bat or get jammed. If you do have that information you know his fastball is probably if it starts in the middle is going to be on the outside corner as left-hand hitter and you know that and so your your, your approach is maybe more so to left center on that guy rather than a guy that's throwing a four-seamer so I wanted to hit a fastball I just I, I needed to know what type of fastball he had and then I you know just try to lay off the off-speed stuff until he gets two strikes it sounds simple but I did that my whole career were prospect ranking something you look like looked at at all when you when you were in the minor leagues? I know it's not like it is now where you can just you can get on baseballamerican.com or any of the other places, but was it something you paid attention to? Yeah, I think it definitely was, and it's something that everyone paid attention. There's baseball Americas in the in the in the locker rooms. Everyone everyone knew where everyone was ranked. Yeah, for sure. I think it's kind of silly though. I mean, the top ten guys like maybe separate themselves, maybe the top 30, but how do you know like the 80th guy is not better than the 81st guy? Like what, what makes that 79th guy that much better than the guy that's at 81? You know, it's kind of, it get kind of caught up, caught up in it too much, I think. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, at a certain point, I mean, this is after your big league debut, but you were, you are one of the, I think they, cause they just, they just did this year's number one overall. I think you, you were one of 29 guys to ever be uh, BA's number one overall prospect. Does, does that go to your head at all in the moment? Does that, does that give you like, I should be like, does it, does it carry weight really with you or add pressure? Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think just being number one overall, but being, being in the, you know, high, high, high up in the rankings, whether it's one or five or 10, like everyone knows who's, who, who those guys are. And so, in the back of your mind, you probably feel a little bit more like you got to prove to everyone that's watching that you, you deserve that ranking. Um, so yeah, whether people want to admit it or not, there's definitely some, some thought process that, that comes with it for sure. At what point in the minor leagues do you start looking at the big league roster? Like start really paying attention to the depth chart. <laughs> uh, I never did. I, the A's were kind of rebuilding when I was coming up. It was kind of after the, uh, the heyday. I guess is how you'd put it. Uh, so they still had McGuire, but he, he had gotten traded to St. Louis before I got called up. And so I think that was the last, um, last guy from the teams that were really the, the good A's teams. And so once they traded McGuire, it was, it was kind of rebuild mode. And that's basically what I was a part of and, uh, didn't take long. They did it pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so you're in, they sent you back to double a in, in 97 and, Thing, things just click. It's a lot better than your first run at double A and, and the power clicks when, when power clicks, is that just physical maturity growing in your body a little bit? Is it pitch selection is a little bit of both. Uh, see, that's a, I, I actually don't even know how to, how to answer that. I, I always had a ton of power in batting practice. It's like being able to hit a home run was never hard from the time I was whatever, 17. Um, so I always knew that if I hit a ball, good it's going to be a homer like the actual power in the swing was there um it's just a matter of you know maybe being more selective and waiting for the pitch that you actually can hit a homer on run on and just having the confidence to wait for that pitch um or maybe it's just physical maturity mental maturity i don't know but i i know that year 
in particular, I was in my first year's big league spring training was 97, um, which is where I started in double A. Um, and I remember when I got sent down to, from big league camp to minor league camp, I didn't get a lot of at bats in big league camp, but for whatever reason, that whole spring training, I felt as good as I've ever felt at the plate. And I had no idea why I just did. And, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, if it was mechanical or mental or just how I felt. And so that, that feeling of spring training just carried over throughout the season and it just kind of kept going. I had little lulls during the year, but they weren't long and it was just a, just a good year for me. When you go to the first big league camp, because of your upbringing, because you were, you know, sitting in a, sitting in a dugout watching Nolan Ryan and Rafael Palmero, was it in, was there anyone who you would get awestruck around or had that feeling long past? So remember how McGuire looked back then? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to be awestruck when you see that specimen in the clubhouse and Canseco was there too in, in spring training that year. Um, and so I, I can remember just, just how enormous Mark McGuire was. And I, I'm naive. I just like, man, that guy must work out pretty hard, you know, <laughs> a lot of curls, a lot yeah. of curls for Big Mac. And then I'd be in there. We'd do our little off season or our little, uh, workout after the game that the strength coach puts up for us and i'd go in and do that um and i remember being in there it takes like 45 minutes 30 45 minutes canseco coming into the uh to the weight room uh with a you know cut off shirt on just jacked and like you said did a few curls was in there for about 10 minutes and i remember thinking like gosh that guy's <laughs> Like, he must have, he must be drinking a lot of protein or something. But just those guys, how big they were. I was I was definitely in awe of how big Canseco and McGuire were. So kind of I guess in that in that run in in the time that you know you're with Oakland, you're in the big leagues. You're probably one of the first people ever to get told, "Hey, Jose Canseco wrote something about you," and not be like, "Oh God, what, like <laughs> you got, like <laughs> he." So he basically chastised you for not taking steroids. Yeah. In, in yeah. his book, he said, "Quote: Let me tell you, Ben Grieve was a kid who needed to take steroids." Canseco wrote, "He had a slow bat, slow feet, and average ability." He's discounting the fact that you you know, hit, hit 28 home runs, like <laughs> right before, right before you guys played together, but the environment around baseball, steroid culture at the time. I mean, you've got the two biggest dudes in the world on your team, especially when you're dealing with health issues kind of later in your career, trying to stay on the field, you're trying to stay good. And you're seeing guys in their thirties have the best years of their career and look like Superman while doing it. Was that, was it at least known that if you wanted to tap into that, it was something you could tap into? Like, you know, does yeah. it at least cross your mind when you're sitting on the DL? It never crossed my mind and I never even gave a thought to doing it. Um, I did have thoughts about like what, what type of player that it, if it did certain things for other people, what it would do for me, I probably would have gone from hitting 29 home runs to 39. And it, I mean, I, that's basically it worked. You know what I mean? It worked in the short term um, for the guys that took it. I don't know anyone that took it that did worse after they took it. Um, they might've had shorter careers, but uh, there's not guys that say, Oh, it made me too bulky. And I wasn't as flexible. Every person that took it did better for at least for, you know, three or four years, um, but their longevity probably suffered. Um, but I never, I don't know. I don't know why I maybe I just scared to get caught. Didn't want to, um, risk the chance of taking it knew that it was bad for me. Um, I thought I could hit the ball pretty far to begin with. Um, and so I, I remember thinking like, Oh, if I take them, it's not going to make me hit the ball any farther. Um, but what it would have done is probably make those outs to the wall or to the warning track, turn them into homers. 
but I never, I never, I never really gave any thought to taking steroids. Yeah. I mean, the, and also the, I mean, the thing you can say about steroids is like, there was an Aussie Canseco too. <laughs> yeah. He looked just like Jose Ali. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, you, 1997, you're, you tear up Huntsville, you go to Edmonton cause there was, there was minor league baseball in Edmonton at that time, which, right. um, I don't, I don't know if we have enough time with the pod, but it seems like, seems like doing the, the Canada thing. If like you're playing Toronto is one thing, but I mean, I guess like, what's it, what's it like in the, you know, playing in Canada as far as in the, in the minor leagues? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and I was only there for a month. Um, and then I got called up. Um, I, I don't remember much, uh, you know, I had some friends on the team that I knew from spring training, but. I, I remember for whatever reason that they didn't put ice in your drinks there. That was the one thing I remember you had to ask for ice. Uh, I don't know if that's the countrywide in Canada or not, but um, they had good fans there. I, I remember thinking like, why would people here watch baseball? But they, they like they liked their baseball. I'm sure they liked hockey more, but uh, it was a fun month. I enjoyed it. So you do that month in Edmonton and then walk me through that first call up. Um, we had just clinched the AAA um championship or, or first place to go clinch the playoff berth i think and we were in uh tucson i think um and so it was after the last triple a game gary jones was our manager and uh he called me in and had me sign a ball for him and i remember thinking like why why does this guy want my autograph and then he told me um after that that i was getting called up and so uh the whole triple a team was out in the locker room with champagne and stuff and uh partying because we had just uh, clinched the playoff berth and uh got got on a plane the next day and flew to oakland and uh got to play the giants uh in the bay bridge series my my first game as an a were you surprised how well you did during that month um yeah i i was that was as nervous as i've ever been um for a game was my first game um so it was more so i just didn't want to like just be terrible. I would have, I would have been perfectly content with hitting 250 and uh, driving in a few runs and uh, having a decent year. So anything above that was, was, was going to be good. And I ended up uh, hitting pretty well for that month. I hit, I think I hit close to close to 300, but you hit 312. Oh, did I? Hit? Oh yeah, that's right. I was thinking my rookie year, I hit less than 300, but when they called me up, I was on like a, serious like hot streak in Edmonton uh we had just played in Colorado Springs and hit a couple cheap home runs there and usually that gives you some confidence and then the series that we were in Tucson I know I, I was doing really well there so when they called me up I was feeling pretty good at the plate so that that helped a lot um because I, I I'm like if they give me a pitch to hit I don't know how good these guys are going to be um these major league pitchers, uh, if I could hit them, but I knew that if I got a pitch to hit the way I was feeling, I'd, I'd, I'd be fine. Kind of the same thing of you getting some time in short season before your first full season, you get a little bit of big league time before what would, would be statistically your rookie year. How much of a difference to just having that, that cup of coffee, those 24 games make, as opposed to if you had finished out triple a and then made the team at a big, at a, at a camp the next year. Oh, I think it made a huge difference um especially doing well in those at bats um i think it helped a lot going into spring training um the following year like you said having having played played a month knowing knowing that i could you know hit 
hit that level pitching and, and have success at that level. So yeah, it definitely helped. The A's, I don't know if that was their plan or their goal just to, was to do that all along, or it was because I was doing well that I got called up. Um, but I definitely am appreciative of, of that month I got in 97. What's the toughest MLB adjustment besides just like pitchers are better? Um, well, everything else is easier um, than the minor leagues, the travel and the access to video and scouting reports and all that. Um, the, the toughest thing at that level is the depth on the opposing pitching staffs. Um, in the minor leagues, each team might have a guy that's nasty or two guys that's nasty. And then you get to the bullpen and it's kind of like your eyes kind of light up at the major leagues. Um, you know, the number four or number five starter on, you know, a lot of teams is, are, are the guys that you're like, okay, I, I got this guy, but um, the number one, two, three starters are all going to be tough to hit. And when you get into the bullpen, they're going to bring, I was a left-hand hitter. If it's a, pressure situation they're going to bring in a nasty left-hand pitcher to face you every time and so i think that was the hardest thing is is being able to to focus every day knowing that you're you're not going to get any you know cupcake of an at bat handed to you for the most part um and then you know you get to the closer and those guys are those guys are ridiculous it's not it's not easy to hit big league closers there's no big league closers in the minor leagues <laughs> they've got they've been called up to the big leagues so you get up to the big leagues and you see some some guys that are not only throwing 98 99 but maybe have like a nasty split finger or a nasty changeup that you've never seen in the minor leagues and it, that's just a product of being able to hit that it's just being able to see it um you mentioned you're starting to get scouting reports and video and stuff that means the opposing pitchers they're also getting scouting reports video on you did you did you notice a difference? Like, as you went through your rookie year, like maybe in July, you're like guys are throwing me differently, especially after you're having a good year, you're having some success. Do you, is that stuff you pick up on at the time? Um, yeah, I was always a fastball hitter and I knew I was, and I figured it was just a matter of time before everyone realized that I was. Um, but it's, it's crazy. Like if you are patient enough back then, I don't know if I could have hit today's pitching, <laughs> but back then, if I was patient enough to get a two, one, three, one count, I'd usually get a fastball. Um, I watched the games today. The Padres have a guy literally through 95% sliders this season, just through every pitch was a slider. The guys didn't do that, do that back when I was playing. They, they would give you get a fastball to hit every at bat. And um, the key is to, to hit it when you get it. But um, so for me back then, I had a lot more success being that type of hitter then I would have, I would have had to change something hitting major league pitching today. I would have hit, either had to start looking for curveballs or le learning how to hit them better. Um, so it, it's, I think that today's hitter definitely has it a lot more tough. Something you did in just looking, just looking at your baseball reference page and kind of looking through your stats is you for at every level in the minor leagues and in the big leagues, you took walks. Um, and back when you were playing, batting average was still pretty, pretty much deemed more important. It's what we looked at, you know, guy wins the batting title, get hits, all that stuff. You know, we're, we're a couple years from, you know, Brad Pitt pointing at Jonah Hill talking about getting yeah. on base. Um, was that something you, I guess you tried to do Were you, did you take pride in on base ability? Were you ever, you know, trying to work the count like that? Or is it just, that's how your game shook out as you ended up being a guy who took a lot of walks. I think that's just the type of hitter I was even when I was little. Um, I know I was the same hitter in high school. Um, so I, it's just a, something I didn't really think about. That's just what came natural to me. Um, the one thing I could 
give you as, as an example is uh, a guy like Vladimir Guerrero or uh, Pudge Rodriguez back when I was playing. Those guys could hit literally any pitch. They'd hit a pitch a foot outside. They'd hit the pitch low. They'd hit the pitch high. Um, and there's other guys that had that style too. I couldn't hit a pitch that wasn't a pitch I wanted to hit uh, or, or hit it good. Um, so if, if I, if I saw a pitch on the outside corner, knowing in my mind that I, I couldn't drive that ball or didn't want to hit that ball, I was able to lay off it. And um, so that's just the type of hitter I was. I wanted to get my pitch or close to it and swing at that pitch and uh, wasn't good enough to, to be able to chase a pitch and still put a good swing on it. You finish out that rookie year, you win, win rookie of the year. That comes with more expectations. So you're baseball America's number one prospect. Then you win rookie of the year. Just like, where's your head at? How do you, how do you keep a, how do you keep a small head in that moment? Like, how do you not think I'm going to be a hall of famer? Or did you think, you know, I'm going to be a hall of famer. I'm going to do this, do that. Uh, I just wanted to keep, keep having good seasons. You know, I just wanted to keep being a productive hitter. Um, you know, I, our team had some good players that year, but I had a good first half in 98 and made the all-star team too. Uh, and I think it was, the, yeah, it definitely was the only one I ever made. Um, so I, I know going into my rookie season, I, I got asked that a lot. Uh, oh, it's going to be tough, you know, to, is there going to be more pressure on you this year? And I, I don't think it mattered uh, whether I won the award or not. I was, I had, pressure on myself just to do good because I wanted to do good whether I won rookie of the year or not so it's more just a, a thing to attach to an article like a oh, former rookie of the year off to a slow start you know I didn't care I wanted to do good whether I was rookie of the year or not it's just more of something that you could attach to you know for a writer to attach to because I definitely got off to a slow start in 99 I think I was hitting 130 in the middle of May and so there was talk of getting sent down and so um you know, you go from rookie of the year to, to being sent down. That's, that's not always good. When you say there's talk of getting, getting sent down, are you like, when, when you're struggling, what kind of talked about, like, what's the noise like when you're a top prospect in high school, what's the noise like at that time, especially when there's a daily, you know, there's a daily paper yeah. at that time. There's, there's the guys on the beat. Are you like, are you getting asked about that post game? Like, are people just like, Hey, are you leaving soon? Um, They wrote, they wrote, they wrote about it. I mean, that's, it was the daily paper after this Oakland Tribune, you know, when we had our three or four writers, there's a San Francisco Chronicle writer there too. Um, and so it's probably talked about less just because there was no internet. Maybe there was, I don't know. I know I wasn't on the internet um, and no social media. Um, so you didn't hear it as much, but um, so if you didn't want to read the paper, you didn't have to read the paper. Uh, but you know, other people would mention it to you. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's tough, and it's probably even tougher now when, when there's even more of it now. Being in the AL West, who was responsible for getting more tickets when you would come play the Rangers, you or your dad? Oh, uh, it probably me when we would go back home and play the Rangers. Uh, but I, I was pretty good about saying no. We got our six tickets, and after that, we had to pay for them. So I'm, I'm like, sorry, <laughs> I gave my six away. You know, I didn't like going asking guys if I could borrow their tickets and stuff like that. So um, definitely got tickets for my family and a handful of friends, but it was nothing crazy. One of one of these games where you see like 50 friends and family. I never was that guy. And I assume your dad had to call games that you were playing. Yes, he did. Yeah, 
Did you ever think about that in the moment? Like if you do something, like you catch a fly ball or you make an error or like you, yeah. know, you get a knock, like, did you ever think about it in the moment? Like my dad has to talk about that. <laughs> I did. I even watched a couple of the broadcasts um, just to kind of listen to see how it went. Um, I know in 97 for that month, we played the Rangers at home and I hit a home run off Darren Oliver. And I think I saw that and my dad did not talk. Um, he let the other guy talk but they show him up in the booth and he's got this just big smile on his face. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, man, that must be annoying for a Ranger fan to see, but how can you not you know, appreciate a dad, you know, wanting his son to do good, but he used to get uh, fan mail or um, stuff from fans, even though he was, he was as good as you could be about not openly like rooting for me. He, like I said, he'd let the other guy talk. Um, and downplay it and act like I wasn't even his kid. That's how he would announce the games. Um, but I, I, I did really well against the Rangers um, my whole career. And he would get people annoyed fans like, oh, you're just rooting for your son. It's, it's not fun. We're, we're trying to win games, like stuff like that. Um, so he still, he still heard it a little bit. But It'd be interesting if your dad was like Hawk Harrelson. I would love to hear <laughs> to have heard like Hawk Harrelson kind of try to navigate that situation. Yeah. I have to put a muzzle on him probably. Uh, yeah, no, your dad's dad's a pros pro. Um, so the Coliseum gets a bad rap, gets a gets a, gets a terrible rap. When you're a rookie or even like a young guy, does it matter that you're not playing in a in a top tier stadium? Now stadiums weren't there weren't as many like immaculate brand new state. Like you're still going to the Metrodome and yeah, some of the some of those other stadiums. Like when you're in the big leagues, does it really matter that you're you're not playing in Camden Yards? Um. No, it doesn't. It's it's funner to play in front of a, a packed stadium, but in the minor leagues, you're playing in front of you know three or four thousand people, and you and you do it. Um, you know the A's were drawing uh, small crowds, and they still do um, for whatever reason. So, I guess in, in some way, it's more re relaxing. Um, you know, my first season and not being under those, those pressure situations like you are in Yankee stadium where there's people on their feet and uh, it's more nerve wracking. So in a way for me, I kind of, I kind of enjoyed that, that atmosphere, the relaxed atmosphere that Oakland had and the, the good weather um, the stadium wasn't great, but the field surface of the stadium was as good as there was in baseball. Um, the way, like I said, the weather was good. Um, so I never, I never really gave much thought to the, to the conditions in Oakland. So after your, your first few years in Oakland, you're part of just what I'm calling one of the biggest, hey, remember some guys trades ever? Because it's a three-team trade and like everyone did something. Yeah. Uh, the Rays send Roberto Hernandez to the Royals. The Rays send the late Corey Lytle to the A's. The Royals send uh, Johnny Damon and Mark Ellis to the A's. The A's send Angel Barroa and A.J. Hinch to the Royals. And they send you to the Rays. You go from just what's what's the process, you know, because it's it's a it's an off season trade, so it's not like you're having to to pick up and move, but it is you know you're a month out of from spring training or so, or like a month and a half out. What's the experience of being dealt? Uh, I didn't have any idea it was going to happen. Um, a reporter in Oakland, uh, her name is her name is I think it was Susan Slusser. I think she's still there. Oh yeah, she's yeah. still there. Is she? I think she's, she, I, I don't know if she's still in Oakland, but I know she's still, still a reporter. Yeah. Okay. I think it was her. Uh, if not, it was an Oakland reporter heard about it. It got leaked out and didn't have my number, but had my dad's number. 
and called my dad asking if I had gotten traded. Um, and my dad you know, didn't know, obviously. And so he called me and he asked me, he's like, did you get traded? And I'm like, I don't think I did. I don't, I, did, I haven't heard anything. So after he told me the call he got, and after I got that call, I called Billy Bean just to see if I got traded. I wanted, I wanted to know if I, I had, and it, he was pissed off that it got leaked. He, he felt bad that it got leaked like that. And he likes, he's like, yeah, we, we traded you to Tampa and told me about it. I'm like, okay. Um, it wasn't ideal at the time. Obviously Tampa wasn't as, as good a team as Oakland. I, I had some people I knew on Tampa, but I didn't, I didn't want to get traded. So it, it kind of sucked at the time. Um, but I got over it quick. Uh, my wife, um, who I was, what year was that? 2002. Yeah. So we had just got married. She, she was just assuming that I was going to play for Oakland for like 15 years. Cause then that was where she was from. She lived up there. And so um, just being able to just be traded like that in the spur of the moment and have to move to Tampa, it kind of took her a little more by surprise than it, it did me. I knew that that could happen at any time. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting process how it happened. Tough lesson in the, uh, the business of baseball yeah. there. Yeah. With with the Rays, the franchise is basically like it's still brand new. It's like three, three, four years old at that point. Um, does it does it matter to pros if a you know, because you think about like a college program, like there's tradition, there's routine, you know, whatever, you know, that that whole thing. Does it matter to a pros that a place there's no real history in a place like especially Tampa had um, no history? You don't really, it doesn't really affect you. You don't really worry about it, but yeah, it's funner. It's, it's, it's more exciting to play for the Yankees or the Cubs or the Red Sox. It's definitely a thing. Um, you know, you get out on the baseball field and the game starts, you're not really thinking about the tradition of the team, but um, you know, walking around the stadium or hearing fans talk um, and just to have an, the general atmosphere of being on a team like the, the Orioles or the Yankees, it's, it's definitely something to be said for that. Um, and like you said, Tampa hadn't, hadn't done anything. And I, I think that stadium was actually built in a quick fashion to try to draw the Olympics to Tampa. And so I think they just kind of threw that state. Their stadium was, I would take Oakland over their stadium all day. Um, I was going to ask, how long does it take to get used to playing defense in the trop? you can see the ball at least the roof the ball wasn't as the ball was different color than the roof the, the metrodome was the worst because the ball was the same color as the roof the uh, i don't remember the rule on the catwalks but balls would hit those catwalks i mean you shouldn't have a stadium where balls are hitting catwalks you know <laughs> it's just and it's still there with the same catwalks oh yeah um so i guess you know for them it's something unique i guess um but yeah it was um I felt bad. I didn't, I didn't do as good as I did in Oakland there. Um, I wanted to do, I, I really wanted to do good because they traded for me, you know, um, I did okay there. I wasn't, wasn't terrible, but I wanted to, to keep improving year after year there and it, it didn't happen. Um, but I, th I think I wanted to impress them more than I was worried about impressing the ace just because they had gone out of their way to trade for me. Is it tougher to play? I mean, you said that the Rays weren't as good a team as the A's. It's kind of an understatement, uh, especially those you know, those Rays teams from back then. Um, yeah, like how is is it tougher to play when you know probably by June July you realize you guys just are not going to the playoffs? Um, I don't think that makes it tough. I th I think just losing in general, it's just not as fun. Um, 
it's just you're when you win games in the big leagues, you're able to turn the music on in the locker room and you're able to joke around and have fun and play cards and do all that stuff. When you lose, you're you're kind of supposed to not be happy. You don't want it to look like you're having fun when you're losing. It just doesn't look good. Yeah, we saw that in the movie Moneyball. Brad, <laughs> yeah. Brad Pitt doesn't like that. Yeah. Was that Jeremy Giambi that he yelled at in that movie? Jer- Jeremy, yeah. Jer- <laughs> he, he bashes the stereo with the bat. Yeah. I, I remember in Tampa, we had a rain delay and uh, Lou Pinello was the manager and we weren't doing good. And we started playing cards and one of the guys like, oh, you think Lou's going to get mad that we're playing cards? Like if we were winning and on a hot streak, no one would care that we we're playing cards, but we were doing so bad. It's like we were, we were actually thinking about whether or not we should play cards during a rain delay. And I'm like, oh, I'll go ask him. <laughs> like, it was not a good idea. I'm like, hey, Lou, do you mind if we play cards? And he cussed something at me and told me to get the F out of there. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'll take that as a yes. So I wouldn't play cards. But yeah, it's just funner to win. What it, uh, just managerial style. You go from Art Howe to, uh, to Lou Pinella. And I, I mean, you had a couple managers over the course of your big league yeah. career, but like how much, I guess like how much does a manager matter? Really? Um, you want to, you want to like your manager and you want to, um, your manager to like you. Um, Art Howe was great. Uh, my first year in Tampa, we had Larry Rothschild was our manager and, uh, he got fired during the season. I liked Larry a lot. And then the guy that replaced him was Hal McCray. And he's kind of an old school guy. And I, I remember, you know, the, the interview of him in Kansas city, when he got upset with a reporter and thinking to myself, Oh, he's not going to like me. Cause I, I wasn't like a, a fiery, like uh, fierce, you know, competitor, throw your helmet, slam your back kind of guy. I kept everything kind of in inside. And, but Hal, I got along great with Hal. Um, I liked Hal a lot. And then after that was Pinella and uh, he was not my style. Uh, so to, Art Howe and Lou Pinella are probably complete opposites. I'd take Art Howe. The Art Howe style is more my style than the Lou Pinella style. Lou expected you to get mad. Like when he played, you know, he got mad and that's great. Everyone, um, you know, deals with situations different. But uh, the way I looked when I struck out, he probably couldn't believe that someone could have that much composure not to throw a helmet or slam a bat every once in a while. I think he wanted me to do that and I never did. And so it kind of frustrated him a little bit. Yeah. He's, very, very noted for his, uh, for his tantrums. Um, that towards in your time in Tampa, especially towards the end, kind of stops your run of good health and playing consistently and stuff like that. What is the, just the mental struggle of dealing with, of dealing with injuries, doubt, anything like that? Um, it's tough because you want to get in a groove. And so getting, getting hurt in the middle of the season, I, I, I was always impressed with guys that could go, uh, be on a disabled list or miss, miss weeks at a time and, and come back and, Left, pick up where they left off. Um, so when I, when I got hurt, um, the first time was for a thumb and, uh, came back. It, it, it took me a little while to get going when I, when I came back. Um, and so I never really, never really gave much thought to that because I had never been hurt before, but, uh, it's, it's definitely during the season, especially if you're trying to get in a groove and to, to miss time like that and, and try to pick up where you left off. It's not easy. It's easy in hindsight to say, Oh, this was, you know, these were this guy's best seasons. This is when he was best as a player or anything like that. When you're, when you're in the middle of your career, do you ever, is there ever a point where you feel like, you know, the best is not ahead of you or you can't get back to the guy who hit 28 home runs or anything like that? It crosses your mind. Um, 
you know, probably my, that first year when I was in, uh, in Tampa, um, I just wasn't hitting any home runs. I, I was had the on base percentage, but you know, as it gets longer and longer into the season and you see, okay, I got 300 at bats. I've only got 11 home runs. How am I going to get, uh, you know, one out of home run every 20 at bats if I've only got one out of every 30 now. And so the longer it goes, the more you start thinking like, Oh man, this is, this season's not going to, I'm not going to ever be able to put up the numbers I put in Oakland. So you, as a, uh, a sport that's uh, stats are so important. And as a hitter, uh, you're constantly thinking about, okay, what do I got to do to get to 300? Okay. If I go 10 for my next, uh, 25, I'll be at 300. So you, every hitter think is thinking that. Um, and so as it gets, as you go longer and longer and your, your stats are kind of where they're at, you start thinking about it more and more. Does that kind of bleed into your approach to the plate of like, I need to, I need to hit more home runs as opposed to just looking for your pitch. I uh, you try not to, you don't want it to, but yeah, it, it does. Um, it, and that could get you in trouble because usually that means you're going to start trying to pull the ball. Um, so you try, you try your best not to change your approach, um, as a hitter for sure. You play a year with Milwaukee after that, that run in Tampa, you do spring training with the pirates and then, but then you, uh, you end up your last season in baseball with the Cubs, mostly in AAA. walk me through each day at the ballpark when I, I guess kind of on the way down. Basically, yeah. been, you've been the number one prospect in baseball in AAA, and now you're a guy who's, you know, you've got all these accomplishments. You've been rookie of the year. You played in the playoffs. You've secured the bag. You've secured a good living. Yeah. Is there still joy in coming to the ballpark, even though it's Iowa, not Chicago? Not as much, but if I were to go to a AAA team um, at, that, at that time, Iowa was a perfect place for me to go. Our manager was Mike Quade who was my double A manager in Huntsville in 1997 and was with the A's organization. And I loved, uh, we called him Q. Um, so that was our manager. Um, there was a guy on our team, Calvin Murray. Uh, it's actually Kyler Murray's uncle, but he, he was, he's from Texas and he's my, uh, played with my brother. And so I, uh, I knew Calvin and he was on that team. We got along great. And, uh, it was a good, good city to play, play baseball. in. so I, I actually really enjoyed uh, Des Moines um, and did pretty good there. And so I got a chance to get called up to Chicago and um, shortly after um, the season started and then bounced, bounced up and down. But uh, Des Moines was a great place to spend time in AAA. What was the, the final kicker in deciding, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done, done with baseball, going to retire. Um, spring training in 2006, I guess not. Yeah. 2006 with the white Sox. Um, yeah, I remember driving to Arizona thinking to myself, do I really want to go, do I, you know, do I have a, first of all, do I have a chance of making the team? Uh, and second of all, what if I don't, do I really want to go play triple a Charlotte with a bunch of new guys that I barely know. And so when that guy, when they, when they, uh, they sent me down to AAA during spring training. And I remember my first game in, uh, in a AAA spring training game with the, with the White Sox. Uh, hit a home run and hit a double and did pretty good. And I got released that next morning. It was almost like, all right, we don't want to start doing too good because we, we're we don't want to keep them anyways. Uh, and so when they, when they released me, I didn't give any thought to trying to play in an independent league or trying to call any other team. I'm like, okay, that's, I, I knew when the white Sox released me in spring training that, that, that I was, that was going to be it. What, what's that first summer? Like, like your first summer since ever not playing baseball. 
Uh, yeah. So spring and summer, I remember, uh, not really knowing what to do with myself. Like, all right, I'm not playing baseball anymore. Do I want to, do I really want to keep working out? But I, I, that was one of the things that kept me busy is I had all this free time. You know, I started, wife got me started doing, doing yoga and stuff, playing more golf and, and exercise. And, and I had, uh, my oldest son and my, uh, middle aged child, which is my daughter, Kaya, they were, uh, three and one year old. And so it was a good time to, uh, have more time to uh, be around them as they were growing up too, for sure. So if you could go back and give yourself a pep talk at 18 day you signed, what, what is that? What does that talk look like? The thing I wish that I, I could do was it would have been first base for me. If I could, if I could have played a different position besides outfield, uh, I think that would have helped. And I, I tell, I tell my kids, um, and other kids now, like, don't think you, you're a shortstop. All right. You, you want to be able to play outfield. You want to be shortstop. You want to be able to play all these positions. And if I could, you know, I was limited speed wise, but if I was a little bit faster and could play multiple positions, I, I think I could have, have played at least a couple more years. Um, so I, I guess I would have told myself, Hey, maybe you should go try play playing first base a little bit because by the time the white Sox told me, Hey, we want to see you at first. And it was too late. Like I remember doing drills on the backfield with uh, Alvaro Espinosa and not being able to make the throw to second base or not doing it the right way. And I, I think that was when they decided that actually that was the pirates. That was the pirates that I, I got the audition to play first base. And uh, if I could have, I think I would have made their team. Um, but I yeah, cause in the NL, there was no, there's no DH spot for a bat. Yeah. So you had to be in the field. Yeah. So yeah, that was the pirates. I, I, I know they, they they wanted me to play first. I couldn't do it, and they released me. <laughs> I think that had something to do with it. Is playing for a job at spring training is that just crazy stressful? Uh, it is if if you haven't. Well, I, I shouldn't speak for other guys, but if you haven't um, done anything at the big league level and you're trying to impress someone, um, I, I think it's, it would be really stressful to try to beat someone out for their position. I had it easy um, because my first spring training before a season that I knew I was going to be in the major leagues, I was going to be their cleanup hitter and play right field before spring training even started, basically no matter what I did in, in spring training. So I never had that uh, pressure. And by the time I was in Pittsburgh or Bradenton, wherever their spring training is, f- fighting for a job, I had already signed my contracts with Oakland and, and kind of made a living for myself. So it, um, it wasn't as much pressure having already, you know, played your career out for the most part. Interesting. I got a little rapid fire for you and then I'll let you get out of here. Okay. Favorite minor league ballpark. Uh, I'll go with uh, round rock. They, had, oh, upper, they had an upper deck and left field. I thought that was pretty cool for a minor league park. Favorite big league ballpark. Uh, Camden Yards. Actually, I changed that. Yankee Stadium. Old Yankee Stadium. Because of the history or because you're left-handed? All because of the history. My favorite parks were Wrigley, Yankee Stadium, Boston, and uh, and uh, the old Detroit. The old Detroit Park I loved. I always love hearing about hitting in Boston. Do you do you ever adjust your approach? I mean, as a left-handed guy, it's a little bit tougher. But like, if I poke it, you know, three hundred, I've got to easy double like lazy fly ball 300 feet easy yeah that, that's why wade boggs liked hitting there so much um that that fence is short if, you, if you're a left-hand hitter and go the other way for sure 
I, I didn't play there a ton just because, you know, they were in the East and we were in the West. I played there more in Tampa and never took advantage of it as much as I should. Might have had something to do with Derek Lowe and Pedro Martinez and Tim Wakefield pitching against us. Those guys were pretty good. Yeah, de- decent, decent arms in yeah. uh, Boston at that time. Yeah. Be- best food city in the big leagues? Um, you know what? I liked uh, Miami and Tampa because I, I love uh, Latin food. I remember in, uh, in Tampa, they had a lot of good Cuban places. I always liked the Latin guys on the teams. always thought I was cra- uh, crazy that some uh, some white American guy would like uh, Cuban food. But I, I love the Cuban food, so I'd say Miami and Tampa. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. They, nothing better. Nothing the, better. The, the plantains and a Cuban sandwich. I'll take that for lunch every day. Yeah, my uh, my grandparents are Cuban immigrants, so that's that's oh, like really? holiday food. So, oh, yeah, nice. It's about, just nice. the best. Nothing better. Nice. Uh, be- best pitcher you ever faced? Uh, I don't count Randy Johnson because he's in a league his own as a left-hand hitter. So Randy Johnson, obviously. Uh, but the best pitcher I ever faced by far, aside from Randy Johnson, was Pedro Martinez. Um, the time At the time I faced him, he th- threw 97, 98, which was just as hard as anyone. He had the best control in our league, uh, being able to locate his pitches. He had the best curveball, and he had the best changeup. Um, I was going to ask that change up from a, from a lefty. Is there like you, you mentioned you, you all, you always went up kind of looking for a fastball. Mm-hmm. Do you just have to accept that? Like you, he might make you look like an idiot. If he throws that change up, Pedro, he made me look like an idiot. I, I, I remember one time he threw me a fastball on a first pitch and I lined a base hit to center field off him. And he just looked at me and he, I could just tell he was so pissed. Like, why did I just throw that guy a fastball? And after that pitch, I'd never, never had a chance against him. The, the thing with him is waiting to see a fastball. He, he could throw every pitch wherever he wanted it. So if he didn't want to throw you a fastball, he never had to throw you a fastball. Um, and just when you're not expecting the fastball, for some reason, that's when he knew that he could throw you a fastball and you weren't ready for it. So he unreal. Yeah, just, he was, he was unreal. Last one I got for you. Everyone gets this one. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Uh I, I know there was one time our bus broke down on a long, I don't remember where it was from or where it was going to, but we had to sit on the side of a road for uh, at least a couple hours. I don't remember the exact details, but that, that one was terrible. Um, the worst ones, uh, I can't give you a specific example, but the worst ones are when you're trying to sleep and uh, you're hearing salsa music in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. And that happened, that happened a lot too, but I didn't have any crazy stuff uh, like uh, toilets getting clogged or anything like that. Actually, I, I got a, I got a bus story, uh, but it's not a minor league bus story. When I first got called up to the A's um, in 97, they do the rookie hazing and they they had me and Ryan Christensen. Uh, they called us to the back of the bus and I'm like, Oh gosh, what are they going to do? And they're like, go sit in the bathroom. And I'm like, what? And so we had to, we had to go sit in the bathroom for like 45 minutes, just me and Ryan Christensen in a tight space. <laughs> it's totally awkward. Like, what are we feeling? What are we going to talk about here in this bathroom? Where was, where was this bus to? When were you guys, was it like from a hotel? It was from, where, a, a, the air, the from an airport to a hotel. Yeah. And it was, okay. there was no game that night. So, you know, the older guys are probably having some beer and playing some cards. That's usually when the rookie hazing takes place. Yeah, sat in a bathroom with Ryan Christensen for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that might be a first on this show. Uh, ben Grieve, that's all I got for you. Thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. 
And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate and leave a review. Episodes from Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. So we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.